This episode is brought to you by Exceder. Exceder provides life science startups with equipment leases on founder-friendly terms to accelerate R&D and commercialization. Lease the equipment you need with Exceder. Extend your runway, hit your milestones. As a podcast listener, you can redeem exclusive discounts with a growing list of biotech vendors and get $500 off your first equipment lease by using promo code TBSP on exceder.com slash rewards. Welcome to the Biotech Startups Podcast by Exceder. Join us as we speak with first-time founders, experienced scientists, serial entrepreneurs, and biotech investors about the challenges and triumphs of running a biotech startup. Gain actionable insight into navigating the life sciences industry in each episode as we explore the business of science from pre-seed to IPO with your host, John Chi. The purpose of the Biotech Startups podcast is to provide general insight into the ever-changing world of life sciences through the experiences of a variety of guests. Exceder is providing this content for general informational purposes only. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Exceder or its affiliates. The use of information on the Biotech Startups podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by Exceder representatives or its guests are those of the representatives or guests and do not necessarily reflect the view of Exceder affiliates and content sponsors. My first guest is Jake Glanville, a computational immunoengineer and serial entrepreneur. He is the founder, CEO, and president of Cenovax, a therapeutics company working on universal vaccines to accelerate the world's transition to a post-pathogen humanity. Before Cenovax, Jake built his first company, Distributed Bio, which he and his co-founders eventually sold to Charles River Laboratories. Through the next four episodes, we cover a wide range of topics with Jake, from growing up in Guatemala to navigating a large organization like Pfizer, all the way to building biotech companies with and without investors. Today, we'll be talking about his early life in Guatemala and his move to the United States to study at UC Berkeley. Without further ado, let's dive into episode one of the Biotech Startups podcast. Jake, so good to see you again. Really appreciate you being willing to be the first guest on the podcast. Um, Super stoked for a conversation today. And yeah, thanks for the time. Hey, man, thanks for having me on. This is going to be a lot of fun. I've been looking forward to it. Perfect. Um, so yeah, you know, I was like talking to the team and thinking about, you know, where's a good place to start. And I was thinking about the founder's journey as kind of like an overarching exploration adventure. And I thought it would be good to start from the beginning. So listeners can really learn vicariously uh, through your experiences. So, you know, can you tell me a little bit about growing up in Guatemala? You know, was there an aspect of your upbringing that sparked your interest in science, entrepreneurship? And, you know, what got you to where you are now? Yeah, sure. So, you know, my parents, they were the owners of a hotel and a restaurant, basically innkeepers on Lake Atitlan. And it was, you know, kind of a weird place to grow up. It was the middle of a civil war and we were in a Mayan, Zutuil Mayan village. But I felt very lucky that I grew up there. And I do feel it kind of influenced a lot of my my interests in a number of ways. So with respect to science, I had, what I really had was my grandfather. He's actually that 
piece of art over there on the wall. He worked at Rocketdyne and was developing the, if you can see the rocket on his his right shoulder there, he uh, led the development of the J-2 and worked on the F-1 engines that took humans to the moon. And, and he was the only scientist in my family, but he was a good one and set the bar pretty high. But also, I feel like he lowered the sense of what is impossible because these guys, you know, they did it in their generation. They accomplished the impossible. And so I think that that sort of that can do attitude, it makes it a little easier to imagine things that haven't been done yet because science can get there. So I think I always had that with me. The things that happened in Guatemala that I I didn't know at the time, but they ended up influencing my journey. One was that the village, you know, didn't have access to good medicine, often not uh, electricity, uh, purified water. And so we had lots of infectious disease around all the time. And uh, I'm an asthmatic. We have other autoimmune diseases in my family. So I would also get sick quite often. There'd be yeah. no power. And I'd be like carted into these like little, there's no hospital in the village I grew up in. So it's a, they're a clinic, which is really like the front room of someone's house who has some medical equipment. And you get like norepinephrine, you get like basically adrenaline shot to try to like resuscitate you. That's, that's the, that's what you have out in the field. And I think I spent a lot of time growing up thinking like, why am I like this? Like, and looking around and, and also seeing like simple medicine, if it was available, could be really transformative for people's lives. And then as an asthmatic, you have this very Pavlovian sense that like, if the medicine's there, you will be better because they have these little inhalers, right? And if you, if you have the inhaler and you can huff it, it will immediately relieve your symptoms within seconds. And if you don't, you're in trouble. And so I think there's this built-in belief that like, if I could just get the medicine there, it would fix it. And it, maybe it's not in my pocket maybe it's not in the village, maybe it hasn't been invented yet, but but a medicine could be made and it could solve the problem. And, and I think that as I've grown and gone back repeatedly, you know, I'm on the advisory board for the hospital that was ultimately built in Santiago. And I have seen the improvement in healthcare there. And it's like, it's been remarkable. It's not just like people are, you know, dying less or getting less sick. It's that they're like growing taller. So the deworming medicine means people are like a, a foot taller than they used to be. And that like, that is like led a pretty profound impact, I think on my decision to what to work on, because I was like, well, hell, like imagine how much time and energy spent like fixing our broken selves. And what if we could get rid of that and have people spending more of their time and their resources creating new things, which is what people are really good at instead of just like that huge lost budget, the lost opportunity of illness. So I think that had a big effect. There were a couple of other things that I would not have thought at the time bore any relationship to the work I do now, but they actually, in retrospect, really do. And one of them was watching my parents run the restaurant. And particularly, my father is sort of a genius at managing complicated, large groups of people to accomplish things, even in difficult and fluctuating environments like a civil war. So he built up a you know, thriving business that was very popular. And it was, I realized as I built my first company that. I was like, why does this feel so comfortable to me? And I realized part of it is that it was the same as the restaurant business. Like you have to maintain your inventory. You have to have hire the right groups of people. You have to be a good judge of character to figure out where to place them in the organization. So you're not grinding them on something they're inherently bad at or missing an opportunity to place them there somewhere excellent. You have to, you know, make sure you have defined protocols, like the recipes, you have a good product, people know about it and you manage that circuit and that you're focusing but it doesn't mean what most people think it means. Focus, if you just pay attention to one thing, your business will fail. And there's a lot of micro businesses in Guatemala. So you kind of like grow up seeing lots of examples of successful and failed efforts to build businesses. 
focus means understanding what's essential and being able to shift gears between those things where you are juggling, but you say, okay, of the eight balls, those are the three that are the eggs. The other ones are going to bounce. And so I can let those drop. And I think all of those lessons turned out to be super useful for me when I built my first company, because it was actually the same class of business. I wasn't selling steaks anymore. I was selling antibody therapeutics, but the the engineer, the, the whole process was very similar. And then the other side is my mother. It was a, she's an artist. And I think I was probably lucky that she was. And, and I grew up around Mayans and hippies and my artist mom constantly making me do artwork. And because I think I would have otherwise been like early on sort of, you know, forced into the like the math, computer science, like this kid's good at this early. Therefore, let's just make him become that. And I think the cross training turned out to be immensely helpful for me and the kinds of work that I do. We live in this like golden age of all these new biotechnology tools emerging. And so it's the creative ability to anticipate something that doesn't exist yet. I think three-dimensional visualization for crystallography and structural manipulation and kind of like out of the box, weird thinking that art inherently drives you towards, I think has really helped me in my career to kind of, I don't know if I, you know, maybe you would have been the same. You don't know who you would have been if you'd like grown up somewhere else, but I feel like that helped me. So I think those are the things that really influenced me. I think the last part is just cheap and scrappy. Like in Guatemala, like you just cannot depend on a single plan in Guatemala because there's like, you know, there's supply chain issues and there's like all sorts of goofy things happen. The roads close. And so you always have like three plans and you have a fallback plan and you have a creative solution if those don't work. And I think that has turned out to be like gold in biotechnology development, startup development. And I've watched great people, but they come out of a big pharmaceutical company or they come out of academia and they really struggle in this environment because their very rigid thinking is unable to adapt or be flexible as needed to accomplish the goal and to constantly remain goal-oriented. So I, I think those are the things that helped me. The last one is that, so the Zutuiles, you know, they were basically one of the last kingdoms to fall um, during the conquest. And it took the another tribe to turn on them and side with the Spaniards in order for them to fall. And this village I grew up in was right across the... Uh, 20 minute canoe ride from the old the old castle essentially the the center of the kingdom Chutanamit. and they were also a super dense population that's remained largely speaking the the language for 500 years and you know it was 98% in the town so i was a peripheral phenomenon to that universe that remained robust throughout that entire period it wasn't like the culture didn't like dilute out in a diaspora and part of that, Mayans are hard asses. They're very, they're real polite and honorable, but they're hard asses. And I think that personality I've always related to. And then they're also extremely good negotiators. There's a whole many like these little fairy tales they tell are often about negotiation and strategy. And then it's a market community. So you go in and you're haggling with people. It's it's rude almost not to haggle or you look foolish. But the haggling structure is like it's the opposite of that stupid book, Never Split the Difference. The principle in my negotiation is you want to cut a good deal, but not so good of a deal for you that you're going to inhibit your ability to continue to create that relationship. You're trying to build a lasting relationship of exchange. And if you try to push so hard for yourself that you break the relationship, then that you might think that that works once is like a little banditry thing like that book, but it's, it is not a working phenomenon in a, a society that's going to keep going back to that market over and over again. And so what you want to aim for is where both groups win, where you can change differential value to be able to maintain a lasting relationship. So you can keep coming back to the table over and over again. And I think that that's, that's always been my impression that you want to strike a fair deal that everybody feels is workable and good. And I think that helps. And you know, our life is long. This is not a short industry. You're going to keep working with people, you're going to work with institutions. And I think establishing a reputation of, you know, credible fairness, it makes negotiation easier. And I think also you, you get very good at it. 
because like there's some little girls like five years old on the boat trying to sell you lemons. Like she cares more about those lemons than most people do about their cars. So she's an exceptional negotiator and they have language kind of like how the Eskimos have lots of words for snow. Mayans have lots of words for different types of negotiation tactics. And so you end up getting this sort of like informal MBA from just being able to survive the market without looking like a jerk. And I think that has helped me in my career path in terms of like promotions and then negotiating for the business and, you know, uh, fundraising, other activities. That So I think those are all the weird ways that I you wouldn't have thought at the time. But looking back, I realized they kind of armed me pretty well for the work that I do now. Absolutely. And there are like so many things I, you know, I, I know our time is finite here, but I feel like I can go in like so many directions and it really, (laughs) I really empathize with that a lot. You know, first on your father running his business, uh, I was going to say being in hospitality is business on hard mode. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's truly hard mode. And a lot of my family and friends and, you know, people I've grown up with grew up working in kitchens. That has always been something that really resonates with me. And just seeing, you know, small businesses, restaurants, hospitality, service, I'm just like, wow. Like, I count ourselves lucky to be in the life sciences where you can get a large check to just do your thing. But in like food service, it's like razor thin margins, volatile customers coming in and out, you know, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, probably not the best days. (laughs) And you're just like, how do I, how do I do this? Like, how do I keep the lights on? So that's like, it really resonates with me. And I think, the same, you know, for me growing up in Berkeley, being close to UC Berkeley, there's a very cerebral aspect <laughs> to being in Berkeley. But also, Berkeley has kind of like a very robust arts, music, and food scene. Yeah, which, yeah. So, like, that also like hit home for me because I was thinking about growing up in Berkeley. It's like, yes, my parents definitely wanted me to just do STEM, but they're like, hey, just like go to a punk show and like go see live music, you know, do all these things and kind of like explore everything else that's out there. And I think. STEM can very much zero in on just like, just do this and do nothing else, right. which I think I agree. It's, you know, there's so much advantage and benefits that come from just like experiencing life really. So that, that like really, really resonated with me. Yeah. We actually, you made me think of another thing. So the other thing with, you're right with hospitality is first off, you end up meeting people from like all over the world. We did. We were a travel destination. You start to realize that like people are at their worst when they're like hungry or tired, which is usually how they show up. And so you kind of creates like a little bit of patience for humans because you realize if someone's a jerk, you're like, well, they might be, it might not be actually who they are. It's like, you don't say that's who they are. You're like, this might be what they're at right now. And and it makes you pretty good at being like gracious up to a limit because you have to be gracious, but you also have to be like polite and friendly, warm and responding. And then there's a point where you're like, all right, we're going to, we're going to just have to pick you over my shoulder and throw you out the goddamn building. Yeah, yeah. And, there, <laughs> and there needs to be that balance. You can communicate that with a smile. So like, I think that stuff helps. And and just like when you meet people, like the experiences you had in Berkeley, you meet people with lots of different like lives that they're living. You, it's kind of the same thing that travel does. And, you know, it sheds your presumptions about how people are. And so it lets you kind of like, give a little more flexibility and a little realization that you kind of like don't know about everything about a person right away. You get a sense of like the universal things like, which is like useful. I'm saying this because it's relevant in negotiation and it's relevant in business that when I'm sitting down with someone, I I do everything I can to know. I don't like sitting down in front of someone I don't know yet. So I, I do my research, but ultimately like it's new and being able to read body language and to be able to like you know, remember, you don't forget, but I not sweat like little perceived weird things that they're doing. You just get like, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'll, I'll re- remember, but I'm going to try to like figure this person out without too much assumptions so that I can give the, there to be enough space to establish a, a connection, which I think is important because like a lot of business ultimately comes down to how much somebody likes you. And, and so being able to be 
likable, but not a pushover, I think is, is another property of startups because you have to be pushy enough to make these things win. But if you annoy the hell out of everyone around you, and I've seen startup people are going around and they're like badgering me on calls and like, I don't know, they're just kind of, I was like, look, I know you think pushy is the answer, but that's not the only answer. It has to be pushy smooth in a way that you're benefiting the community and not getting on everybody's nerves. And so I think that, that was a perfect pushy smooth. That was like spot on maybe a younger me before I had enough tries to negotiate. I was like, no, it's like a winner loser type situation. And there's like a younger John, but over time, it's like, you're exactly right. It's just like, if you just keep burning people and like extracting, extracting, there's nothing left and no one like, no one likes you. And like, yeah. life's too, like, <laughs> life's yeah. too short. I think I was reflecting on that style, but time is the one asset that we're really trying to manage that you can't get it back. And when you're working with someone, you're spending a lot of time with them. And if that time is really unpleasant, you're like, why am I doing this? I'm not getting that time back. Like I've, you know, you've been kicking me in the teeth every time. I'm like, you know, maybe I go spend my time elsewhere where I feel like I'm actually, you know, respected and obviously, you know, healthy balance, but it that completely makes sense to me. Everything you kind of described is kind of like, there's a bunch of stakeholders. You have, you know, your vendors, your clients, your shareholders, your employees, and like, you got to make sure, like, exactly like balance those things and not just have someone or like a party just atrophy and just like get no love because yeah. it takes a village really. So, yeah. you know, over Absolutely. time I've realized. <laughs> and, the, and the squeaky wheel will get the grease. So you have to be a little careful of that when you're balancing your time, because like, if you're not very protective of that and willing to say no, what's going to happen is the people who are, you know, squawking the most around you, you're going to end up doing that, which means you're kind of like working for them instead of actually working for your needs. If you're in leadership in a business, you're going to get a lot of pressure towards you because there's a lot of incentives for people to try to change your mind. And so you have to build up like a certain level of like, you always want to still want to listen, but you have to realize you're taking their data and you're filtering it and you're willing to ignore it because your ship needs to be managed by your terms. And yep. I think you have to be cautious of that because there's lots of very you know sophisticated methods that people can try to distract you from your core purpose. Yeah. And I think like one of the hardest things was like getting comfortable saying no. You want people to be happy unless you, you know, you're a rare kind where you want people miserable. But, you know, I think, <laughs> like, but, yeah. but, you know, like I think that muscle is like something I'm just like a muscle that is so worthwhile learning early. Yeah. It saves you so much heartache, <laughs> but it's hard. I, not really a digression here, but, you know, I know you went to Berkeley, you're studying MCB and, you know, obviously inspired by your hometown in Guatemala. How did you make the decision to go to Berkeley and study there? Were there, you know, other routes that you were like considering? Like what landed you at Berkeley? Yeah. So Berkeley was kind of fell in my lap. So what happened was I... Well, the other thing, my dad almost died when I was like oh, wow. 15 from an autoimmune disease. And it was one of these lucky ones where it turns out they diagnosed it in time and you can get chemotherapy and, and it can kill off enough of the immune cells that it stops the disorder. So that happened towards the end of my high school down in Guatemala. And I had I was going to have one year left. I dropped out of high school to like run the restaurant and try to like manage it while he was they were trying to figure out what was wrong with him. So it was just another area where I was like immunology, like what the hell's going on here? And I was interested in it. And then for my last year of high school, when he was getting better, he sent me back up to the States. And I, what I did is I, I spent my last year of high school so I could graduate from a Californian high school so I could go to one of the UCs. And this was a strategy to try to reduce costs so I could be a resident and get in-state residency tuition. And I chose you know California because my grandfather, the same one on the wall, he lived in Chatsworth in Los Angeles. And during that year, I they did okay. And I'm like, 
super appreciative for everything my parents did, but like the, the finances didn't really translate from Guatemala and Quetzales to dollars. So I wasn't going to go to private school. So I looked at the UCs and I basically just decided, I don't know, I decided early I wanted to go to Berkeley. I think when I was 12, someone asked me and I'm like, I think I'm going to go to Berkeley. And they're like, oh, yeah. you know, that's a pretty hard school. Like giving me that look like I said I was going to be an astronaut. Yeah, and so I think yeah. I was like, well, fuck you. And so then I kind of focused on it. So I applied to Berkeley and I applied to UC Santa Cruz because it was on the same form. But those are the only schools I applied to for undergrad. And I got into both. And so I went to Berkeley. And so that was basically the path. I was interested, like I said, in immunogenetics. So I did... Uh, the closest thing was MCB, molecular cell biology, and there was this emphasis in genetics, genomics, and development. And so that's what I got in on. And at the time, I was always fascinated with computer science. Like in Guatemala, there's this thing called the C Bible, which is like a key instructional document on how to program in this like critical programming language called C that like a lot of the internet's built on. And I found the book and I'd learned the language without ever actually being able to like execute it, to like write code and execute it. Because in Guatemala, I didn't have access to a compiler. When I got to the States, I finally did. And so I was doing kind of the computer stuff as a hobby. I was, and this is like, you know, the internet was like blowing up during this period. This was like 1998. And I, I was extremely interested as a hobbyist and like making websites and computer security and you making web servers and stuff like that. And I didn't really fully appreciate it was going to have a relationship to the immunogenetics that I was interested in. I started working in a laboratory, the HLA Population Genetics Laboratory of Glennis Thompson. And while I was there, I started being exposed to something called population genetics, which is a way to use math and statistics to try to like extract super useful, meaningful information about the nature of genetic change in populations over time. And it requires computers, it uses algorithms and lots of data. And so I suddenly realized that I was writing games, computer security things. And I realized that my skill set was vastly translatable over to computational immunology. And the laboratory realized that as well. So I started writing like these drift simulators and some like at the time simple and increasingly I mean, over time more for sophisticated tools to analyze immune diversity. And I think that's when I sort of the thing clicked and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I love this. So I was doing that at Berkeley. I also worked at the laboratory second with the Shalander Berkeley Phylogenomics Group. And this was like a super awesome group that was in the early days of like big data and biology. People were starting to put the data up on the internet, right? And so she was using methods to take lots of proteins that had evolved across organisms and we could gather them using hidden Markov models, which is the same kind of math your phone uses to take your voice and turn it into text and to understand what you're saying. And it turns out that same math, this group that she had worked with previously in Santa Cruz, it's, that math is really good at analyzing mutant versions of the same type of gene that has evolved even a lot over time, even in bacteria and viruses. So it's barely recognizable at the sequence level, but you can pick it up and realize, oh, this is actually like the same word with a very different accent. And it's mutated a lot, but it's the same thing. And you can get a lot of meaning out of the, these mutated sequences. And so I loved it. It was fascinating. She was incredibly brilliant. And um her and Glennis were just sharp as hell. So I was lucky to work with them. And I loved it. It was like exactly what I was interested in. It was a lot of probability theory. And there was like crystal structures you could map the data onto. There was this database of like 7 million sequences that had just popped up in R, which at the time seemed huge. And so we were working to cluster the universe of known proteins into these unique folding structures and be able to improve our ability to characterize what, the, what all of the genes do. You can learn a lot by looking at lots of examples of what a gene does because you can see where it mutates and where it doesn't. And so the sites that never mutate, you know, are important. And so you can kind of gain some insights there. And there, there's some other methods to gain insights based on related genes and what you know they do. So I was doing that there. And I think that that really gave me a lot of very formative training that translated to my future work. 
like I said, I'm going to say this over and over again. You don't always know at the time how it's going to be useful in the future. And I think a little bit, it was very lucky that it happened to be the things I was fascinated with kind of kept resynthesizing and coming together. But I will say that's also a really good strategy in your life is like, be attracted to general principles with many applicabilities. And then when you cross train, cross train far enough, it's something new, but cross train close enough that you can re- you can fold in your previous knowledge because then you can be like the Johnny Appleseed of bringing one field into another field. And I, I benefited from that. And so that was, that's kind of my experience at Berkeley. That's all for today's episode of the Biotech Startups Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our insightful conversation with Jake Glanville about growing up in Guatemala as a child, moving to the United States, and attending UC Berkeley. To learn more about Jake's journey, be sure to tune into our next episode, where we talk about his time at Pfizer and studying at Stanford University. We look forward to having you join us again on the Biotech Startups Podcast for part two of Jake's journey. The Biotech Startups Podcast is brought to you by Exceda. Don't want to miss an episode? Make sure to search for Biotech Startups Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and click subscribe. To learn more about our leasing program, visit our website www.exedr.com. We provide research labs with equipment leases on founder-friendly terms to support a path to exceptional outcomes. On behalf of the team here at Exceda, thanks for listening.